Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Now that heart is beating fast And that's the rhythm I can dance to oh, I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to That one big heart that's beating fast Tomorrow morning let it rain Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drunk. Beat out old trouble and drunk. Beat out old. Trouble on the drum and kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum and kick all trouble out the door. Kick him 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 out the Radical Australia, we're back on Community Radio 3CR, like that dog shit smell you can't get off from the bottom of your shoe, Radical Australia is back. I'm Joe Toscano. Unfortunately, Dale Bridge, co-producer extraordinaire, is stuck in Queensland. No, she has not been arrested. You can relax. I checked up on that. And in her place, we have young Kelly, who is having trouble... Technically, Kelly. Now, what, what are your, what are your problems, Kelly? What are your problems? What are your technical I, problems? I can't hear anything through my headphones. Well, because okay. they're not bloody working. You want mine? Because no, I don't use them. No, no. I'll, I'll get by. You'll get by. All right. It's very embarrassing having these technical issues. When I told our guest here, Mr. Henry Light, that you are the extraordinary technical expert. You're the Greg. You're the female Greg Siegel. Yeah. What do you reckon cool. about that? Cool, yeah. Henry, you got notes? Well. Uh, sorry, turn them over. We don't do notes on this program. Uh, it doesn't work that way, mate. This is a radio show. Yes. It's a live show. It's live. Yes. I ask the questions, you answer them. It's very simple. If you don't need notes, because people think... He's fudging it. He's reading. No, 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 I'm not reading it. No, I'm just, no, no, you're just glancing just look, at it. Yeah. Little hooks. Yeah, you just look at little my hooks. eyes. You just look at my eyes. That's what's yes. about, you know, all right? <laughs> yeah, it, the control eyes. Yeah. Now, Henry, it's a pleasure to have you in the studio. I've heard a lot about you, but I've done no research on you. I'm sorry, because I didn't actually want to. Although we've just had a drink together. I had a cider and you had a coffee. Yeah. And Kelly had a wine. Yes. So we're all oiled up, Kelly and I, and you're not. So obviously, Henry, you're... can you hear everything through your headphones? Yes, I can. Oh, that's of course good. Then. Can. Uh, excuse me, uh, none of this technical garbage, please, Kelly. <laughs> this is a live show. We're professionals. Dale would never have done that. Okay. Now, Henry, we only asked two questions through the program. You've got 56 minutes to answer them. <laughs> uh, there's no ads. 
do you play any musical instruments? Uh, I do, actually, yeah. Did you bring it with you? No. You're very lucky, because if you do, we actually get you to play. Yes. We'll talk about that later on. Okay. Well, the first question is, I just want to orientate listeners, not embarrass you. What year were you born? I was born in 1942, Joe. 42. Two. That's not too old. Well, not too old. You're only nine years older than I am. Yeah, so well, this is true. Not too old. Yes. You know, have, you, have you reached seventy-seven or not? No, not quite. Not quite. Okay. All right. And the second question is very easy questions to answer. Obviously, a man of seventy-six and a bit would know that the answer to this. What's the first thing you remember about being on planet Earth? Ah, that's now that's a trick question, Joe. <laughs> because you, you should know that. The memory at the age of 76 yes. is not necessarily the same memory when I was 50 or 25. Well, but, but the memory you've got now is you. Yes, but <laughs> and it could be a number of yeah, look, memories. Look, you're trying to fudge it, mate. No, What's no, the first thing you remember? Well, look, one, one clear memory. Well, it's the first, I don't know, but right. it's certainly a clear early mm. memory, and that was mm. at the end of the war when I was um, hold, hold up in uh, hospital, mm. St. El- Elizabeth's Hospital or Infirmary in Olakmar, where I had... Excuse dip- me, where? Olakmar. Where's that? Olakmar is the north of Holland. So you're in Holland at the end of the war. Uh, that's right. Oh. Yes. In fact, born during the war. So um, I had diphtheria. Mm-hmm. And diphtheria was uh, infectious, and I shared a room with, I think he was a soldier, mm-hmm. yep. and he died. Yep. And I remember that very clearly because um, my family, my youngest brother hadn't been born at this stage, um, would visit me on Sundays, and there's a big window and they'd all be staring at me, pointing the finger at me, and I would be preoccupied, cleaning between my toes, and uh, I look up, and then I saw my family and make the most ridiculous faces at them. I remember that that interaction between mm. the family and myself mm. right. as one of the earliest memories, memories that I've yeah. had. It's quite interesting that what you talk about diphtheria. I think people don't understand how bad it was because when I first graduated, I think, which is a long time ago, 1975. My first job was in the children's ward at the Royal Brisbane Hospital right. as a young intern, and I was shown the diphtheria bell, okay. which is a bell they had at the children's hospital. If the bell rang, you would know that there's some young kid somewhere choking because yes. of the pus and the swelling in the That's neck. Correct. And yes. as a young doctor, you were told that you'd had to go there and put a knife through uh, some cartilages in the neck and inserted tubes that they could actually survive. That's that's mm-hmm. uh, you did very well to survive. Yes, to survive it. When when, when the young the young soldier beside you died. Yes, you did extremely and that well. that made quite an impact on me. Yeah, I do recall. I was about four or five at the time. Well, it would be. Yeah, it would yeah. would have a huge impact on a little child seeing an adult yep. die beside them. Now, um, Holland. How many brothers and sisters did you have? No sisters, uh, four brothers. Are they still alive? The other th- No, only one, one brother's uh, alive, so alive. there's two of us left. Right. You have many memories about your parents? I certainly do. Well, tell us about your dad. Well, my dad was born in the Jewish quarter, even though we're not Jewish. Mm-hmm. But Amsterdam is a Jewish city. He was born in the Jewish quarter of uh, Amsterdam, and most of his mates were Jews. Mm. My father was actually brought up by his grandmother, who used to go up and down the canals on the barges um, with sacks of, of flour or what have you. Mm. So he wasn't, during his adolescent period, he wasn't actually brought up by his own parents, but by my great-grandmother. Right. 
And he was a typical Amsterdammer, a bit like the East Londoners. Very funny. Uh, he was a commercial traveller. Right. He was a very... He, he didn't have a wife in every port, did he? Uh, no, he wasn't that kind. <laughs> <laughs> no, but my, my father was a commercial traveller right. and also a cheesemaker. Right. And he was uh, like on my father's side. They were all funny people. Mm. On my mother's side, who were farmers, rather rigid, stodgy, humourless, but very, very um, moral, upstanding people in the local community. That's a perfect marriage. Well, you got both extremes. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so I, I suppose I might have inherited a bit of the, the, the complexity or the contradictions of that particular marriage. Yeah. But I was very fond of my father. He was he was an excellent man. Yeah. Never never lost heart. I mean, we had a fairly tough time yeah. in the beginning when we came to Australia in 1952. Yeah. Let's, go, let's go back a step anyway, or two. I, I, I want to go back a step or two. Obviously, your father, growing up in the Jewish quarter of Amsterdam during the Second World War, did he, did he ever talk about what happened? You mean in that quarter? Yes. Uh, n- not not a great deal. He was born in 1910. That, that's mm. just before the, the, the First World War. Mm. And he, as I said, he had a lot of Jewish mates. Mm. Amsterdam, uh, of course, like most great cities, have gone through their economic uh, mm. recessions and also... Their, no, I'm just uh, talking about when the Nazis were there and, oh, and, their, anti- and their anti-Jewish uh, oh, yes. program. Oh, no, he wasn't in Amsterdam at the time. Mm. He was then... Um, uh, you know, he shifted from Amsterdam to Alkmaar, mm. or his parents had, and uh, oh, he's very conscious of the, uh, the the impact that the Nazis had in Holland. In fact, my father, because he was a commercial traveller, used to visit all the big farms mm. and had a lot of mates who were farmers, mm. and as a result, was well, well was, was was looked after mm. during the war. And he was giving potatoes and so on, which, and he, he used that to feed the extended family. Yeah. But he, he yes, he, he was also familiar with the resistance. Yes. He didn't play a big part in the resistance, but he had contacts. And, uh, of course, the Nazis were, were indeed ruthless, mm. and a number of his mates were shot. Mm. Um, so the imprint of Nazi tyranny... It was you know we talked about that all the time. time right yes in fact I talk about that I wrote a memoir mm. um, which was called by the scruff of the neck and there I talk about my father my parents experiences during the war I was too young but my older brothers and my father told me after the war what the conditions were like during the war right and how yeah. did you you got any memories about your mother you'd like to share yes my mother was a bit of a drama queen mm. she was a very good mother very emotional, could be a little bit manipulative, a bit unstable uh, emotionally. But because my father was like a rock, they somehow uh, worked it worked it through. So I've got nothing but, you know, I love my mother and I love mm. my father. Mm. Probably on balance preferred my father. Right. Uh, I shouldn't say that perhaps. But then on the other well, hand... Well, parents have favourite children. Why shouldn't children have a favourite parent? I suppose so. <laughs> but also to be fair to my mother in hindsight, she had five boys and a husband to look after. Yes. So she would have, whereas he had his own way of dealing with uh, mm. the outside community. Well, yeah. So it was in some ways easier for him as it was for my mother. 
Yeah. So in fairness to my mother, she had quite a bit on her plate. Yeah, six men. Yes, yeah, six men. Men in the same house. Well, actually, no, five men and then my <laughs> younger brother just after the war. Yes. Right, right. Okay, so you did mention that you came to Australia. Do you know why your family came to Australia? Yes, I did. Uh, I do. Um, after the war, Europe was in ruins, Holland was in ruins, and people said, well, what are we going to do? And so many Dutchies, and not only Dutchies, right throughout Europe, Europeans thought, well, I think migration, I, I, I should describe it as the pollen of migration was in the air. Right. So that was one reason why we emigrated from, from Holland to Australia. Another reason, I can now probably say, but I'll say it in general terms, my oldest brother, he was dislocated by the war. In fact, my two oldest brothers were taught to steal from the Germans and we had oh. a garrison of Germans nearby mm. and the little blonde boys who went into the tents and then mm. knocked off stuff. Yep. We still have some... Uh, <laughs> souvenirs. <laughs> souvenirs from that era. Yeah. But because my oldest brother couldn't fit in because mm. of the war, for five mm. years he was more or less expected to be a thief and yeah. whatever. You couldn't kick the habit after the war and right. knock off cars. So that was another reason. And yeah. then, of course, there was the... the, the uh, I call it propaganda, although I loved the man at the time. There's Arthur mm. Corwell, who's Minister for Immigration, mm. who came to Holland and came to other parts of Europe to promote Australia as this wonderful country because Australia needed manpower or mm. women power, but certainly manpower at yeah, the time. Yeah. So those three reasons. So, so how old were you when you arrived? I was nine. So do you remember anything about when you hit Fremantle? I certainly do. Tell us about it. Well, we, we came on the Fair Sea, which is um, one of the, the sister ships of the Sitma line, mm. and from Cape Town, sorry, from Suez, what am I saying? We can't, we, we, because it was before Suez was closed in 1956, there was a long stretch from, the, uh, from Aden to Australia. Now, when we hit uh, Fremantle, I, we... we were allowed to go on, on land, not for very long. And we thought, what strange place is this? We saw these old shops, double story. I wouldn't say it was dirty, but, uh, but it was certainly wasn't as, as clean and tidy as, as Holland was. <laughs> I don't think anything is as clean and tidy as Holland. Yes. So you had uh, wrought iron yeah, balconies. Yeah. And um, we, we, we thought, of, what a weird place. Yeah. Um, and then we also, as little kids, we wandered about. I still remember some of the pubs when you had, um, how shall I put it, the, the, the glass exteriors yeah. had pictures of old men smoking their yeah, pipes. Yeah, people that look like me, you know. Well, don't we'll have one at 11, don't you know. Don't yourself <laughs> down, Joe. It's very, very distinguished or extinguished, as someone would say. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, the thing is that uh, it, it, it had a rougher Mm. Uh, impression, then I think Holland was more delicate and probably a bit more civilised. Right, right. So where did you end up? Well, after 52, we went to Melbourne, caught the train to Bonagilla, uh-huh. where, like so many other migrants. Yes. And we weren't to be very long. Mm. And there was a farmer by the name... No, should I mention his name? Yeah, yeah. yeah why be, not? He'd be dead he, by he now. He is dead by now. Yeah, so you, can't, name, you can't defame the dead. Well... <laughs> His, his family were okay, but he was an odd, odd bod. But yeah. His name was Jenkins. Uh-huh. And Jenkins flew from the Tasman Peninsula to Bonagilla, mm. lined us up 
as, as if we were in a school Cat, photograph. Yeah, yeah. And he uh, more or less said to the priest, who was also then, uh, yeah, they'll do. They'll do. <laughs> so we then caught, I think, a, a TA-8 or a Douglas yeah. aeroplane to Hobart. And then we went from Hobart to a place called Primadina, mm. which is just past uh, uh, the uh, Port Arthur right. convict settlement. Uh-huh. Now, both my parents were urban, urbanites, right. townies. Yep. And they came to this place, this godforsaken place in 1952, couldn't speak the language, nor mm. could any of the boys. Oh, my oldest brother could speak a bit of English. Mm. And that's where we landed and we worked on a, a mixed farm. That was mixed farming and, yep, you know, yep. and so on. What, the, what was the accommodation like? Well, there was an old house mm. which sort of wasn't too bad mm. and it was pre- previously occupied by, I think, Italian mm. workers. Mm. And we had quite a good time. We had to travel to New Bina mm. by bus, an old Bedford bus. And the houses were okay, except the dunny was outside, so we all had to take turns to dip, yep, yep, you, yep. Know, you know. You know what did you like, think about the maggots and the dunny? Oh, looked, you remember the maggots? I, I still remember the maggots. You'd go out and they'd be, <laughs> you know, these white maggots in the little tin. You still remember that? I certainly do. Yeah, yeah. Well, even maggots have a right to uh, Well, they do have a right to exist. <laughs> they got a good job. And then, then you'd see the dunny man would turn up, you know. And, and uh, I was in Queensland, it was much hotter, and they'd have a little scarf around, handkerchief around their head, singlet, they'd put the shit can on there, and then they'd trot down, and you think, the maggots, they're falling down his shoulder. <laughs> yes, well, the same applied in Holland too. They had yeah, the yeah. Dunny Man too. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so there you go. Very important job. Yeah, but get, getting back, so how long did you last in Tasmania? Oh, not long. And we were there for about six months because my mother said I'm going to commit suicide here. <laughs> Fair enough. And my father also, we worked out that we weren't being paid properly. Right. Well, yeah. wage theft. That, that, wage that's theft. a strange tradition. I mean, he's going to say <laughs> wage theft. You know, what's strange. new? If George can do it, why couldn't <laughs> exactly. Jenkins do it? So, uh, fortunately, we had a, a friend who was a baker mm. in Tralgan. And my father wrote to him. He said, look, you know. Help. Help. We want to get off this bloody island. Mm. And so he said, well, come and stay with me for a while. And there's plenty of work in the Latrobe Valley because they're building the power stations. Mm. And that's what happened. We then went to the Latrobe Valley Mm. and we lived in Morwell. In the housing commission between um, my 50, early fifty three. You mean in in nineteen fifty three, yes. Australia was kind enough to give you a housing commission home, and in two thousand and nineteen, following the privatisation binge, we have people. I had to step over today on the streets in Melbourne. Absolutely correct. Extraordinary, isn't it? It is extraordinary. In fact. If you go, I shouldn't say because I still have friends yeah. and go to Morwell fairly regularly. Yeah. But I would, I would argue that the the houses were cleaner, in better nick than they are now, mm. Mm. and the population of Morwell was bigger then mm. than it is now. Mm. And there's all sorts of reasons for that. Mm. But we had a, a, an interesting time in Morwell because my father, being a thrifty Dutchman, also decided to uh, sell wood. So we became fuel merchants. Mm-hmm. The younger boys, and I'm the second youngest, we went round all the houses to collect beer bottles. Yep. And yep. and the older boys... Submarines. Submarines, we used to call submarines, them. Submarines, yes. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and so for sixpence a dozen, we, we, we sold the... And plenty of people were drinking beer because beer was the staple yeah, uh, drink. Was, yeah. Wine wine didn't exist no, in no. those days. Mm. Mm. So that was Morwell, and then I went. Did you to, go to school? Yes, I went to the um, 
um, Sacred Hearts school in, in Morwell. So, so you're, you, you were Roman Catholic? I was ca- brought up a Catholic, Catholic yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, but learned to rebel against it when I was 18 and went well, to that's, university. That's, that's normal. In fact, that's almost de rigueur, isn't it? <laughs> it is de rigueur. But the thing is that, uh, yes, we, we, uh, we, 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 we got a lot of satisfaction in Morwell, but when the two older boys moved to um, Melbourne... Mm. And the two middle boys were doing reasonably well academically. Yeah. Uh, my father said, I think it might be time to make a move to Melbourne. To Melbourne. And I was also, I, I should say this rather immodestly, quite a good soccer player. Mm-hmm. And played, Not that anybody would know what soccer was then. Uh, well, football. Uh, well, see, yeah. football. Yeah, 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 but I mean, I mean, those yeah, days, yeah. apart those from the English what, migrants what and the Scots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But anyway, so... But what position? I was outside left. Oh, very Lost good. my spleen, in fact, yeah. playing soccer. Did you? Where? No, no, but where, 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 where? Oh, this happened when we moved to um, Australia. Uh-huh. To, to uh, what am I saying? Melbourne. To Melbourne. Yeah. And I Who was, were you playing for? Uh, for Dandenong, but yeah. I was then selected to play for the under-16 state team. Right. And in a practice match against New South Wales, and I was fairly quick and I was a winger, yeah. Yeah. I came in to head the ball into the net. Yeah. The goalkeeper, who was about three times my size, came out. <laughs> But I was quicker. He missed the ball, but he got me right in the solar plexus, yeah. and I lost my spleen. It was ruptured in two spots. Was it was it diagnosed straight away? No. In fact, the coach says, "Oh, you know, yeah, we're, wimp. We're, we're used to this. Happens all the time. You get kicked in the in the in the guts. Yeah. So just go home, have a hot bath, and you'll be right. Yeah. And you were bleeding to death. And I was sort of hem- hemorrhaging <laughs> slowly. Yeah. yeah, slowly. That's right. And then just coincidentally, I had a paper round. Yeah. And just outside a doctor's uh, surgery, surgery. You collapsed. So maybe there was a divine intervention uh, taking place. Uh, I collapsed. <laughs> and my younger brother sort of said, what are you doing And I said, <laughs> I, I didn't have time to say I'm quietly dying here. Knocked on the, on the door of the doctor. Uh, and then, and very quickly ascertained that yes, it had something to do with it being kicked in the solar plexus on that previous Sunday. So, so where did you have a spleen taken now? When? Where, where? Royal Melbourne? No, uh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry, I'm with you. No, that was at Dandenong Hospital. Well, you did well to survive. <laughs> That's right. In those days. Well, in fact, this, this, <laughs> the surgeon who had one, one leg, <laughs> he was Welsh rugby player, excellent surgeon, although when you say actually, if you look at the scar, it was a pretty rough scar yeah. and it, I had to operate quickly because... Oh, you were dying. I, I had the, the... You know more about yeah, medicine yeah, than I do. Yeah. Uh, but I, if I you were dying. I could have. I could have bled to death. Yeah, you were dying. That's why it's operate quickly. That's right. Simple. My father. My father then would say yes, but uh, it's a Dutch saying, "Onkraut vergaat which means weeds will always come up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've, I'm still here to tell the tale. Was you know? that the end of your soccer career? Oh no! I, play, I actually played. Yeah. I played soccer then until the age of forty-three. Well, who did you play for? Oh, I played for for Dandenong, but for Monash University right. for a long time. A little bit for Ferntree Gully. Yeah. Toyed with Ringwood United, right. uh, but it was actually Ferntree Gully. It was my last um, yeah. team yeah. I played. You're for. In, you're in your last game. I do because that. <laughs> I, I, I um, 
I think there was something snapping in my <laughs> calf muscle, and I thought someone had thrown a stone at me. Uh, but in so fact, I'd kill him. And so they, uh, they, I said, oh, 43, yeah, this is uh, happening. Achilles gone. I better, yeah, yeah, hang up yeah, the spurs, you know. Yeah, yeah. You never took up coaching? Um, no, but as a teacher, I often coached um, right. sides. And yeah, I was, it yeah. would be unusual for a young Dutch lad, immigrant, to go to a Monash. How did that happen? A very good question. Um, I was taught by Barry Jones. Most, Not the Barry Jones. The Barry Jones. Uh, he was my teacher for three well, years. He was a $64 million man or he, something. He was, yeah. the, he was the, the Chris champion. Yeah. And the, the, the fact is that Dandenong High School, which is one of the older high yeah. schools, yeah. was, as it is today, mm. a multicultural school. Yes. Although a different composition. That's right. So there were a lot of Russians there, Germans there, Serbians, Bolts. Dutchies. The Bolts. The Bolts. Yeah. Uh, there were no people from, from Asia. Yeah. In any case, um, why Monash? Because um, it was still quite formal and rigid. I did Latin. I did, um, you know, so the teachers... Hang on, hang on. How did you get it? What year did you get into Monash? Oh, in 1962. But it's unusual for people to go to university in 1962. So how come you went to that's university? Right. Well, that's right. Well, yeah. My father also always favoured learning. He said, look, the best thing you can do is... Study, read books, do well at school, and work hard. They're the sort of twin. Mind you, there's nothing new in that. But no, no. Most no. parents say that. All immigrants say that. That's yeah. right. But the there was a shortage of teachers at the time. So Menzies, that's probably one of the good things that Menzies did, um, made studentships available. Right. Being coming from a poor migrant background. I just latched onto the um, bursary, and as a result of that, that's my matric results. I mm. got into Monash. Mm. And how long were you at Monash for? Uh, now Monash, the first degree was um, first degree. First degree was three years. Yeah, because I was bonded with the yep. education department, and um, so what you did three years, and then you went out. Three years, did the diploma of education. Right. Became a teacher, For but three I, years. I did yeah. well enough in politics to. Hang on, hang on, hang on, I, hang on. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to 62, no, 62, 63, 63 64, 65. It's my dip year. Yeah, yeah, dip head year. And when did you come back? And then I was um, appointed to a tech school, it's my first school, mm. Noah Park Tech, mm. but I was very interested in politics at the time. Yeah. yeah. So I did politics at lunchtime. Uh, admonished. Admonished to finish off that, what that year? major. What year? And that was, I did my, that was in 1960, 1966. Yeah. And as a result of that, I was. You weren't one of those people we saw at the LBJ protest. Oh, possibly. You know, you no, weren't no, throwing no, paint at the, no, in 66? You no, I, well, that wasn't you, was it? No, it wasn't didn't, me. You didn't embarrass the country, did you? <laughs> No, no. I, you sure? Yeah, I, you look familiar. Yeah, I look familiar. I could, have been, I could have been there, but then, as I said, the memory plays tricks. No, no. But the thing is, I then went back and did a master's on Tolstoy. Tolstoy. Why yeah. Tolstoy? Uh, because I was going to do a comparison between um, Leo Tolstoy and Friedrich Nietzsche, mm -hmm. and my supervisor, Harry Redner, a good man he, he is, and he's still with us, thank goodness, he said it's too big a canvas. Mm. I mean, I can see why you want to contrast and compare the two. Yeah, it is a big canvas. It's yeah. a big canvas. For a master's it is. Yes. So he said, why don't you just 
select one or the other. Mm. And I've always been impressed with Tolstoy when I read um, What I Believe, which I read in the Monash Library, I think about 63, 4. Mm. And uh, I've always been attracted to Tolstoy's, Mm. um, Mm. not only his literature, but also his anarchism. Mm. Mm. So I decided to do... So, uh, so, So are you still a Christian? Am I a Christian? Mm. Oh, no, no. No, no, no. I mean, Tolstoy was a Christian anarchist. I was going to say, yeah. Tol- Tolstoy had his own particular take on Christianity. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, he, he was first and foremost what I'd call an 18th century rationalist, yes. leaving aside his, his, his literary imagination, mm. which, of course, became evident in Anna Karenina and mm. War of Peace and Resurrection and mm. Master and Man and a host of other smaller works. But he was a rationalist. He was very much influenced by by Voltaire, Kant, mm. and so forth, and Rousseau. And while he 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 became a Christian, he was he was never very active in the Orthodox Church. No, and developed his own brand of Christianity. Mm. Uh, the kingdom of God is within you. Is one of yes. his better known essays. Mm. And basically, he was saying, take the Gospels as they are, the Sermon on the Mount, which became a kind of, you know, the foundation of his Christianity. Um, So, yes, he he was a Christian. He was a pacifist. I was very much attracted to the the pacifist side of of his anarchism. I don't subscribe to to his rational analysis of the Gospels for a host of reasons. Yes. All right. That's interesting. So have you done any more work on Tolstoy since? Well, I haven't, I haven't touched Tolstoy for m- many, many years. Right. But I was invited because I did most of my research in England. Mm-hmm. And I was very fortunate to uh, have been um, in, the, in the company of the great man Surazai Berlin mm. because he came out and did a series of lectures and Harry Redd said, get yourself known yep. and then quiz him when you get to, to England. So I visited Isaiah Berlin. Uh, in '76 uh, at uh, All Souls College, and the great man was there, and um, I asked him about Tolstoy. Mm. Coincidentally, while I was in his room, he picked up the phone to talk to um, Boris Pasternak's sister, which was also the, the, the time of the dissidents, the yes. Sakharov, and so on. Mm. Uh, and so he said, so you want to do work on Tolstoy? He himself, of course, yes. has written on, on Tolstoy. Mm. Um, the Hedgehog and the Fox's problem may come to mind. But he actually pointed me in the direction of a number of people. One of them was John Bailey, who happens mm. to be the wife of Iris Murdoch, mm. who's a um, tall, bumbling sort of fellow, mm. who yeah. lovely man. And wrote, I think, a, a, a work on Anna Karenina. But I became very chummy with a fellow called Ronald Sampson. Professor Ronald Sampson worked at Bristol University. Mm. He was a Lancashire mm. man, and he and mm. I became good mates. Mm. And as a result of, of that uh, friendship, when there was a colloquium put on at the United Nations in 1988, for some reason I got a Guernsey to go over right. and uh, give a paper. Mm-hmm. On Tolstoy, which I did. Right. In fact, I've got a, I've got a copy how, here. How did that go? Don't read it. No, I'm just. <laughs> I, I'll just. No, it was called Tolstoy's Death, Imperative, and Civilization. And how did the paper go? How's it? How was it received? I think it was well received. Well, I mean, how do I know? You I'm, don't know. Well, people. I, I mean, I'm come and pat you on the like, back later on and say that was all right. Y- yes. That was all right, John. That was okay. But you see, it 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 had uh, something like uh, twenty Tolstoy scholars from all over the world. Oh, right. And my Russian is pretty well non-existent. Yeah. 
But I think um, Justice Tulsa was fascinated by the notion of death, mm. which negates – he was a passionate oh, yeah. Man we're who, all, we're all know, fascinated. We're by all the fascinated nation, by, by death. the nation of death. I can assure That's you right. of that. Look, it's four thirty-three. This is Radical Australian Community Radio Three CR streaming live on three crorgau I'm having a chat. It's not an interview with uh, Henry Light. Or Licht, L-I-C-H-T, is that correct? Yes, that's, that's yeah, just... Yeah, I have a terrible, terrible pronunciation. Henry Licht or Henry Light? Make it light, yes. Or make it light, yeah. Uh, a light beer is always good. Let's <laughs> make it light work. Uh, look, uh, and if you've uh, missed a bit of the program, the program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Now, I'm going to fast forward a little bit, uh, Henry. So how did you earn a living? You know, you're an old man now. How did you earn a living? How did I earn a living? Yeah. Oh, yes, I was a, I was just a, a teacher. Just the teacher. Just the no, you know, teacher. A, yes. a Socrates. You were a Socrates. Just I, I the teacher. I wish I was. Just the teacher. Yes. What do you mean, just the teacher? <laughs> no, my, my, my uh, teachers. Yes, I, I taught for 35 years. 35 years. And became a... a Obviously, you were a private school teacher. No, no, I was very much a high school. On principle, I would never teach in a private school. Why is that? Well, because private schools are what I would, I would say uh, allied with the capitalist class, I'll yes. put it that way. Yes. And whereas I think, according to our own uh, constitution, we live in a, uh, in a sexual society. Private schools are, uh, is really are schools for, for privileged people. So you, you for the, taught for, the elites. for thirty-five years in the public sector. I did. And ha- how do you feel that those thirty-five years were spent? Well spent or wasted time? No, I enjoyed my teaching very much. Mm. What did you teach? I taught history. Mm-hmm. I taught politics. Taught German, which mm. I taught a bit of German, um, and literature. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there, there, there's in, in what areas? What areas in Melbourne? In, well, mainly Melbourne, Victoria. Yes, mainly, Victoria. mainly around around Melbourne. But I also taught in New South Wales right. at Fort Street. Yeah. I also taught in England yeah. in seventy six. I've taught in China. Yeah. I've um, yeah, but essentially my teaching career was in Victoria. In the public sector. In the public sector. Have you seen any changes in the last few decades? Well, you're asking someone who's been out of teaching. No, no, no. But when you were in teaching. Oh, yes. Um, education never stays the same. Mm. It's in a constant state of flux. It reflects certain trends. It also reflects the socioeconomic situation we're in, uh, technological developments and so on. I would say one big difference from when I was teaching is the impact of computers and also mobiles and what have you. Mm. Um, in term, Basically, teaching hasn't changed that much in the sense that you've got a class, it's up to you to be able to control them, impart knowledge and make sure you like kids and I've always liked kids Mm. and make sure that you uh, communicate what you want to Mm. impart to them. Now, over the last 35 years of teaching, say the 35 years you did, when did you retire? About I, 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 I retired from secondary teaching yeah. in, in 1998. All right, let's go. So you taught, what, for about what 30, 30 35 years in secondary. In secondary. Did you notice any change in the students? Um, or, or are students always the same? In essence, I think students pretty well stay the same. Mm-hmm. They've got their peer group, peer group pressures, They've got their petty little, you know, concerns. Mm. 
uh, as I said earlier, I think the impact of technology in all sorts of ways, and I, I regard technology as a bit of a double-edged sword, mm. uh, has had quite an impact on students. Um, are students nastier than they were in, 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 in my earlier days? Probably not, but there is potential to become nastier through what I call cyberbullying, for example. Mm. But in essence, really, kids don't change that much. So irrespective of what's happening around them. Yes. I, um, I mean, kids like to be the, the sense of self-esteem that they've got. They're very unsure of themselves because I think adolescence is just a, a, a turbulent period of their lives. Mm. And adults often don't sort of tune in to their concerns. Mm. Um, I've always liked young people. I'm not so keen on old people, as I said earlier. Well, I can understand. You're but, talking to a, an old person here. And, I, no. and you, you did, did show me a bit of disrespect <laughs> when you walked into the studio. <laughs> yeah, the fact that I'm eight years old or thereabouts. Yeah, yeah. But the reason – and I, I, look, I think – we have to put much more time into young people. I think they get. Do you think it's worth? You don't think we're putting the time in? Well, in the, in, I, I think the older people know. Mm. I, I think there is less tolerance of kids. The, um, the fact is that it's so much more difficult in a way for young people now than it was when. Yeah, well, I, like your you brother, know. he would have been put in a juvenile detention. He'd be in a juvenile detention. That's yeah, right. Yeah, and he would have. His, his life would have gone to a different trajectory. You know. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. No, seriously, but I mean, I mean, there's. I think there's no room for forgiveness anymore in our society. It's just, you know, it's just judgmental. It's so judgmental. I've never, I've never actually remembered a period where it's, society has been so judgmental. You know, it's just extraordinary. Political correctness and what have you. Uh, no, I'm just, just, just judgmental. judgmental. Somebody makes a little mistake and it's the end of their life, basically, you know. Yes, yes. You well... Know? well, I'm out of the education circus now. No, I'm just saying generally. But generally... I'm not sure about that. Mm. Um, so you think we're more forgiving? I mean, you're making sort of a judgment based, I'm making a based judgment. on what? Uh, I'm, on my own personal experience. I mean, I mean, what I see around me, I say, you know, like in the past, we kind of forgive somebody and say, oh, well, he's done that, he, or she's done that. They're going to turn around at some stage. But today, just bang, 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 as we saw with the... The experience with the African kids, you know, in, in, in the northern suburbs, it was yeah. just extraordinary that that, yeah. uh, that constant attack by all sections of society. Oh, there is. There, there, in that sense, yes, there is a kind of, I suppose, there's a hypersensitivity now in, in our society now, and and there is a you get the impression that possibly has been heightened by media exposure. Yes, yes. Uh, where in fact, yes, the African kids are picked on. And, of course, I've taught Vietnamese kids. I've taught mm. Chinese. I've kids from all kinds of nationalities. Mm. And one good thing about Australia over a long period of time, and I'm not so sure whether it's happening now because I'm out of touch, mm. there, was, there was a considerable toler- a tolerance and, and um, you know, we, we put up mm. with kids from different backgrounds and we didn't pick on them and no. put inside. You get the impression that this is happening a little bit more because most, you know, certain political... political um, Agenda. Agendas, yeah. Yeah. Now, getting back, you, you retired from secondary teacher in 88. And no, 98. 98, sorry, and obviously you went, went and played golf, did you? Oh, no. no, no. <laughs> I, I, I look upon golf, and it might be a great sport for many people. For old people, yeah. It's, it's one of those... Um, yeah. So what did you do? What did you do? So what did I do? I then got a job at Victoria University right. in education, and I lectured uh, both secondary and primary aspiring teachers. Mm-hmm. Student teachers. What was that experience like? Terrific. 
Uh, I worked. My bosses were women, mm-hmm. and they were they were wonderful. Brenda Cherednychenko. She was actually not a girl married to a Ukrainian, obviously mm-hmm. with that name. Mm-hmm. I think she's now at um, uh, Deakin University. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maureen Ryan was another one, and it was wonderful working for them. Now, Victoria University is different in the sense that a lot of the kids came from the western suburbs. And so they, they weren't, you know, your people who, who mm-hmm. went to Melbourne University or Monash or what have you. And I liked the kids there. Uh, they weren't as bright, in, I suppose, uh, or as challenging as, as, as perhaps students from, from some of the other universities. But the, the ethos was good. I, mm-hmm. I enjoyed my time at Victoria University. Mm. So why did you finally retire? Were you just told that you're too uh, old? No, no. Oh, no. In fact, technically speaking, I'm still on their books. All right. I, I left... Uh, Partly because, well, I was 63, 64, I always wanted to do a bit of writing. Mm-hmm. And the other reason I had to travel from um, Melton and from Footscray and from oh, Sunbury to way. the Dandenong, so I got yeah. sick of that. Yeah. And probably the, the, the third reason was that I began to detect quite a bit of cheating, plagiarism, mm-hmm. and I didn't like that, and that also went into the equation so about you think, So you think the World Wide Web, as you said, is a two-edged sword? It's a two-edged sword. A two-edged sword. Like a most technology. Yes, that's mm. right. All right, so now before we get on to what you've done since you retired, well, retired from paid work. Not yeah, from, from paid work. Not yes. from life. Um, <laughs> um, did you, uh, have you got any children? I've got two sons. Two sons. How old are they? 45 and 42. Did they follow your footsteps in education? Uh, one of them, yes. The second son is uh, a music teacher right. and he's a musician and mm. plays four or five instru- instruments, and um, including the Illin pipes. The what? Illin pipes. You know, the, the, the Gaelic. The, oh, the Gaelic pipes, the, yeah. The, 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 the sheep thing under the... Yeah, the, uh, the elbow pipes. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So he, he and he's actually a percussionist. He's right. a drummer, professional right. drummer. Right. Uh, and the other son's also an excellent musician, mm. and he's got a wonderful voice, mm. and writes music. Mm. Mm. And uh, so they're, they're creative, artistic. Mm. Mm. Are, are you Jeff. still still married, or uh, this is my second marriage? Second marriage. Yes, right. um, I was married to my, um, my ex-wife, with whom I get on yeah. very well. Mm. She's English. Mm-hmm. And my second wife is um, a Punjabi Sikh mm-hmm. f- from Singapore. From Singapore. Right. Yes. So, so that's... Well, what, did you meet in Singapore? Or? No, I met here in Melbourne. Melbourne. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes. And, and life in the Danongs is all right? That's right. Yeah. And, of course, I've now embraced the Sikh culture, and I'm mm. part of it. I know many Sikhs. And why have you embraced it? Apart from your wife being well, Sikh. Because why, a, what, are you interested in the Sikh culture? Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm interested uh, in all cultures. Right. It's just that she, uh, being a devout Sikh, mm. then goes to uh, Blackburn Temple. Temple. Yep. And a lot of people go there because mm. they've got kitchens attached. Mm. And, and they're a very sociable um, religion and also very egalitarian. Mm. And, in fact, the only other white who's there regularly, apart mm. from myself, mm. not that I'm a, a believer, mm. is a Greg Sheridan of all people. Right. So he and I sometimes, you know, we get Strange. our swords and... and, 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 and <laughs> And pick on one another, but we get on pretty yeah. well. Now look, I'm going to ask a very crude, ignorant question. How does every sing know every other sing? 
And it has as every princess, no, every other princess. Well, they don't. They don't. Right. How do you work it, how do you work it out? But, but, but that's, of course, you're right. Sing means lion, of course. Yes, yes. And that's just a, a kind of an honorary thing that, yeah. they, that they all adopt. Yeah. And the same applies to women. Yeah. They, they apply the word core, K-O-U-R. Oh. Yeah. And that's just one of those peculiar things. No, no, no. The, 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 the Sikhs are a bit like, like, like the Jews, the Chinese, like a lot of migrants. Yeah. The diaspora, they're all over the place. place. Yeah, because I have noticed there's a new temple springing up at Water Gardens. I've noticed a bit of activity up there. Yes, there, there, yeah. I think there are about six yeah. Sikh temples well, in, in, right. around Melbourne. So what research have you been doing lately? Oh, well... Uh, that, that's a very broad question. Um, well, it's a broad interview. Yeah, well, it's a broad <laughs> interview. That's right. Um, New Guinea. I've just been asked to. I don't know whether it's time to talk about that now. Yeah, it is. Look. Uh, yes, I, I don't know how we, how we go. <laughs> Perfect time. timing. Yeah, Perfect timing. Right. If you know. Anyway, that's my job. I look at the clock. All right. Okay. All right. Well, you just look at your notes, which you've closed, which is good. Yeah. I'm being embarrassed here. I, you know, go. This is this is very. Uh, can I handle it? I suppose I can. Well, the the thing is that I've been involved only peripherally, I suppose, mm-hmm. uh, for the last twenty years with the West Papua Freedom Movement mm-hmm. or Medeka that you're familiar with, and I've known Jacob Rumbiak and Louise Byrne for twenty years. Mm-hmm. And Louise came up with a proposition about mm, 18 months ago, two years ago. Hard to remember that exactly. Right. How about – I've discovered this, this this book. Who discovered this? Louise. Louise discovered yeah. it mm. and she approached me and said, well, you're, you're, a, you're, a, you're a clogwog. Mm. So how about uh, – can you translate this book? And I said, well, I'm also trying to write a novel. I'm also <laughs> involved with a couple of other organisations. Yeah. Uh, not very keen. My Dutch is pretty good, but it's not brilliant. Yeah. So, well, how long is it? And she said, oh, it's 100 pages. Mm-hmm. And see, I've already translated a few diaries, Dutch diaries, for a friend of mine to do with the Jewish diary, actually. Yeah. And it's a bit of a challenge, and I said, oh, I don't really want to do it, but all right. So my conscience, uh, my guilt, mm-hmm. uh, which is probably legacy in my, my Catholic days. Well, it does. Oh, guilt's very important. Guilt is very, it's a great spur, actually. It is, it is. And uh, I said, well, all right, I'll do the 100 pages, but where is it? Where is it? And then Louise says, oh, no, 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 it's not really, uh, it's uh, um, uh, not for me to chase it up, it's for you to chase it uh, up. She, she, knew the, she knew the title. She knew the title. Did she know the author? Google. Did she know the author? Yes. Right. His name was. Well, M- she did half the work for you. Yes, yes. Half the work. I don't think so. <laughs> anyway, so I then um, pursued it and discovered a copy at an old antiquarian uh, bookseller in Leeuwarden, which is the capital of Friesland, one of the provinces. And I found the book. Can I give you? A, can I tell you a story which mirrors your story? Uh, you know Raphael Carboni? He was one yes. of the radicals to in the Eureka the, Rebellion, with right? The Eureka right. Rebellion. He wrote an opera called Gabernia, which was about the exploitation of Aboriginal people. He saw them as victims of colonialism, British colonialism. Yes. The first time in Australian white history that, that it was lost. There was this academic from Monash was wandering through the streets of, I think, Turin, and saw this bookshop, saw this uh, um, book 
stalls on on the street. And he went and he found a copy of Gilburnia and translated it into English. Well, and now we're waiting for somebody to put on the play. Is it a good? Is it is, is it is it a good play? Oh no, it's good, an opera. Sorry, it's an it, opera. Is it a good opera? I mean, well, what opera is good? All right, so uh, this is your story. No, I love opera, but all right, tell yes. us. So you got this? You exactly. found it? So I found it. Yeah. And I, the dear old, there was a dear old lady who ran the antiquarian bookshop. Yeah. She wrote to me in Dutch, and she'd never heard of PayPal. Yeah. But I managed to get money to her, and uh. then I got a copy. Mm. It was published in 1956. Yes. And pretty well went out of print. Yes. And it's just a, a ripper of a book. What's it called? It's called Wij Fochten in het Bos, which, which translated as We Fought in the Jungle. And, and who and who's the author? Fellow called Morris Cockerlink. Right. Now Morris Cockerlink was an Indo. What's an Indo? An Indo three quarter he happened to be three quarters Dutch as in you know, his yep. parents, his father was born in Holland and yep. his own grandparents. And his mother was quarter Javanese. Mm-hmm. He was born in central Java. Right. And Indos, uh, I don't like the term very much, mm. but uh, it's, a it's bit like, like, like Anglo-Indians. Indian, yes, yeah. indeed. Now, they had been in the Dutch colony for hundreds of years and by and large weren't too badly treated and provided they adopted the father's name, mm-hmm. they um, were pretty well accepted. There was still a pecking order, as yep. all there has been, but it's nothing like apartheid. Right. Where it was very clear-cut where the... The Dutch Boers, who were mm. Protestants, looked upon the the, the blacks mm. as inferior Brilliant. and so on. Yep. But this, this wasn't the case in Indonesia. They were pretty well accepted. Now, the reason why I make that point is that the Indos regarded themselves as Dutch. Mm-hmm. So when Cockerlink, who had uh, already enlisted in, in Knil, the Koenlijke Nederlandse Indische Leger, which means the Royal... Indonesian uh, Dutch army Mm. he had already did his service and was a crack shot and I think he was about 18 Mm. at the time but when he was 20 he decided to emigrate to Dutch New Guinea Mm -hmm. or West Papua as we know it now that New Guinea was regarded as the land of milk and honey Mm -hmm. just as Transmigration have been with us since time immemorial. In fact, mm. Australia's been settled as a transmigration country, really, when you look mm. at the convicts. He went to New Guinea in 1933 to make his fortune. Yep. He was after, I'm going to find gold. Gold, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to find cassowaries oh, yes, yes. And, and sell the meat yeah, and yes. the feathers and whatever. Typical Dutch. Typical Dutch. Yes. Anyway, so what happened was that this wasn't the case when he arrived. Mm. It's very poor, very backward. And he worked for someone for a while and mm. then after six years set up his own farm, mainly pig farming. Mm. And he was happy. He, he was a very f- a free agent, free, yeah. in, I mean, in the sense that he, he didn't want to be bothered. Yep. He hated the army that he was in earlier. Mm. Uh, he was a free spirit. Mm. And then, of course, uh, in, on the 7th of December, 1941, Pearl Harbour happened mm-hmm. occurred. And two months later, the Japanese began bombing Manawari, mm. which is the main city, the capital city of Fohokopo, Bird's Head, mm. or West Papua. And that meant his little farm was bombed, mm. and he didn't like it. 
And so he was called upon by the then captain who was in, of, the, of the garrison in, in Manakwari, and his name was um, Willems, Captain Willems Geroms, another hero. And he joined his particular band of guerrilla fighters because the Japanese uh, meant business. Mm-hmm. They bombed the shit out of that northern coast of the Folkop and were very nasty, plus propaganda that they were already, you know, yep. spreading. And Geroms um, worked out very quickly that um, it's no good taking them on, but we're going to be obliterated. Yep. And so they said, let's go into the jungle, jungle. and let's retreat. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how much time I've got you left. Got, you got, you got five minutes. Yeah, all I'm saying is, but poor old Captain uh, Willem Geroms in 1944 became very ill because going and retreating into the jungle in um, West Papua, you're retreating into... Malaria uh, country, yeah. Malaria country, mm. uh, disease left, right and yeah. centre. Yeah. Plus, of course, the uh, contact with the, 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 the tribes. Yep. The Japanese mainly confined themselves to the coast. coast right. And they, there were, in fact, 1,100 Japanese sent out to look for this cockerlink mm-hmm. and Hiroms and, uh, and obliterate them. Mm. The fact that they retreated into the jungle and took pot shots at mm. the Japanese and eliminated a hell of a lot, a mm. couple of hundred at least, mm. meant that the Japanese were very frightened of this guerrilla group. Uh, there was, I think, 10,000 guilders put on the head of Cockerlink. Mm. See, Cockerlink took over from um, Hiroms because Hiroms became very sick, mm. probably mentally affected, and so he was going to take over the remaining, Band, uh, the, the yeah. group, you know. Mm. And there were 62 to start off with. And at the end, there were only 14 who survived it. Right. So Cockerlink, uh, who just showed fantastic leadership from a, a carefree, easygoing chap. Yeah. Yeah. He was intelligent, resilient, mm. tough as nails. Mm. As I said earlier, excellent shot. And... He was a good tactician. He managed to break up his little group, the smaller groups, his mm. smaller targets. Right. And the Japanese just loathed him mm. and despised him. And he managed to survive, even though the Dutch government didn't know mm, in Jakarta that they existed. Yes. And the reason why they knew they existed is because there was a Japanese ship which was uh, captured by the Allies and there were bullet holes everywhere. Where? And so where did the bullet holes come from? So the, the, mm. the, the captain of the Japanese ship said uh, that, in fact, yep, yeah, all right. So no, no, it's, it's, it's fine. Anyway. Yeah. So this Sunday. Yes. 4th of August. Yes. 1 p.m. Yes. 838 Collins Street, Docklands, Absolutely. at the back there, That's at, the, right. at the conference room. We're having our regular fourth monthly meeting. West Papuan Office Open Day, Ren Collective Open Day, lunch at 1pm, and the main attraction is you. Oh, I don't think so. Well, it is. It I, is. Because, I, I, look, look. if you want to find out more about this story and their relationship with the West Papuans and what it has to do with the West Papuan independence movement, this is fresh stuff off the press, and you want a signed, personally signed autograph copy for a little bit of cash, around 30 bucks, I think, come along. You're all invited. 
It's easy. You don't have to be a member of the Rent Collective. You pay $15 for lunch. And if you don't want lunch, you pay nothing. You just get a cup of coffee. And if you're a member of the Rent Collective, which is a dollar a month, as you all know, you pay nothing for lunch. And you listen to John Light. Henry Light. Sorry, what I was talking about. Henry Light. That was my second name. Yeah, Henry John Light. (laughs) Henry John Light. You listen to Henry John Light. This is extraordinary. This is just as more important than Gilburnia. This this is extraordinary. It's comparable to uh, Weary Dunlop's diaries. And, of course, Flanagan's book about the narrow road to the deep north. And I'll have a little bit to say about that. No, it's comparable. It's it's extraordinary. And what happened? I assume he's died now. Cockerling yeah. died in 1994. He was born yeah. in 1913. Yeah. He he was sent back to Holland in 1962. Right. And uh, he he was working in toilets. They treated him very badly. Right. So he said, that's it. I'm going to emigrate to Dutch Guiana, right. Suriname. And that's where he died, in just Suriname. outside Kien. Yeah. yeah, it's a tragedy. It's a yeah. tragedy. It's a, yep. it's a Shakespearean it tragedy tragic. when you look at it. Yes. But it's an extraordinary story. And I congratulate you on uh, finding the book. I congratulate Louise on actually finding the book initially, but on you doing all the work. She's the show pony. You're the draft horse. So if you want to see the draft horse, you want to see Henry Light, come along. Henry John Light, Licht, L-I-C-H-T. Come along, 1pm this Sunday, 4th of August, 838 Collins Street, Docklands. This is an... Extraordinary historical moment. Even if you're not a member of the Rent Collective, we don't care. Turn up. I'm going to buy a signed copy, in which I never buy books, but I'm going to buy a signed copy because this is just as important, in my opinion, as Gilburnia. Thank you, Kelly. You're not as good as Dale, but you will get there after a few years. <laughs> but you are an extraordinary, you know, you're a Mr. Siegel's heir apparent, I think. Thank you very much Henry and thank you very much listeners and listen in to Radical Australia next week where we will have another extraordinary guest and now that heart is beating fast and that's the rhythm I can dance to I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to that one big heart that's beating fast tomorrow morning let it rain Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drunk. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble on the drum and kick all trouble out the door beat me that rhythm on the drum beat me that rhythm on the drum beat me that rhythm on the drum and kick all trouble out the door kick him out the You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.